I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will abstract selected articles from the September 2011 issue of JPGN, a complete table of contents, and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or at the Society webpage at www.naspigan.org. The issue is headlined by an invited review by Gordon Klein entitled Gut-Bone Interactions and Implications for the Child with Chronic Gastrointestinal Disease. This is a well-thought-out paper that starts with the premise that bone is not simply a framework on which to hang the viscera and connective tissue, but is a dynamic, interactive organ system with roles in immunoregulation, adipogenesis, vascular calcification, and others. The author goes on to review the mechanisms for bone loss in inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, and cystic fibrosis, focusing on the reactions of bone and bone marrow to chronic inflammation, particularly the effects of inflammation on intestinal and renal calcium and phosphate transport. The author also discusses the processes involved in the stress responses after severe burns, and suggests that similar stress responses may be important in mediating the bone losses in children with inflammatory bowel disease. The author also makes some sensible recommendations for prevention and therapy of bone disease in specific GI conditions. The next article is a short communication entitled Late Adolescent Linear Growth Pattern in Pediatric Onset Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Hood and colleagues. Linear growth is a major concern in older children with IBD. We always hope that if we can get the IBD under control, there will be late catch-up growth that will put the patient back on the appropriate percentile before final bony maturation occurs and growth ceases. These authors looked back at the heights of 475 late adolescent patients with Crohn's disease from age 16 to 20 years to see if there was indeed a late catch-up growth period. They compared the predicted adult heights of these patients to their actual heights at 18 years of age for females and 20 years of age for the males. They found that female patients had mean height for age z-scores of minus 0.25 at 16 years and minus 0.23 at 18 years. In other words, they hadn't grown very much between 16 and 18 years of age. Boys had height z-scores of minus 0.3 at 18 years and minus 0.26 at 20 years. They, too, did not have significant late growth between these two ages. The 18-year-old girls and the 20-year-old boys were actually 1.5 centimeters and 2.4 centimeters shorter, respectively, than their calculated, anticipated adult heights when they stopped growing. The authors conclude that children with IBD, despite commonly exhibiting pubertal delay, actually attain their final adult height at the same time as unaffected children, and thus, hoping for a late catch-up in growth is not realistic. They stress the urgency of identifying growth impairment early and addressing it effectively before it is too late. 
The first original GI article is entitled Inter and Intra-Observer Agreement in 24-Hour Combined Multiple Intraluminal Impedance and pH Measurements in Children by Pillich and colleagues. These authors selected 24 continuous MII tracings at random from four different institutions. Software-aided automatic analysis was performed in each. Each result was then validated by two independent investigators from two of the four different centers involved. Six measurements were then analyzed twice by the same observer to gauge intra-observer consistency. They statistically evaluated the agreement between different observers using the Cohen-Kappa coefficient. On 13 of the 24 reports, the two observers had perfect agreement as to the results. On nine, there was substantial agreement and lesser agreement in the remaining two, based on the Kappa coefficients. In the six studies looked at twice by the same observer, agreement in interpretation was perfect in five and substantial in one. What these authors have shown is that most evaluators agree with the computer-generated results of impedance and pH studies, although there is still some disagreement between observers that could impact the final results of the study. They blame disagreements between observers on poor signal quality in some tracings that made interpretation difficult. The authors suggest that improved agreement on results in these complex studies could be achieved by using a standard analysis protocol, standardized methods for judging tracing quality, better training of physicians, and more of these kinds of interactions between investigators from different institutions. The next GI article is entitled Long-Term Efficacy of Low-Dose Tricyclic Antidepressants for Children with Functional Gastrointestinal Disorders by Teitelbaum and Aurora. The aim of this study was to look at long-term efficacy of tricyclic antidepressants, amitriptyline or imipramine, in functional GI disorders in children. The authors reviewed their own experience in 98 patients with irritable bowel syndrome, functional dyspepsia, and functional abdominal pain diagnosed using the Rome 3 criteria who they had treated with tricyclics. Unfortunately, the authors did not have a standard instrument in place for prospective evaluation of response and had no placebo group. They simply reviewed their office notes using a retrospectively designed instrument to classify level of response. They also tabulated side effects, result of endoscopic evaluations, and reasons for dropping out of therapy. Limitations notwithstanding, this is a pretty large group of patients diagnosed, treated, and evaluated in a uniform manner. 77 of the 98 patients improved with tricyclics at fairly low doses. The average duration of effective therapy was 10.7 months with a range from one to 45 months. They concluded that in their hands, tricyclics were effective for long-term therapy of functional gastrointestinal disorders in pediatric patients. The next article is entitled Role of Gastroesophageal Reflux in Children with Unexplained Chronic Cough by Borrell and colleagues. The authors looked at the 24-hour combined esophageal impedance and pH records of 45 children with unexplained chronic cough, calculating in each patient the symptom-associated probability between reflux and cough. Controls were 20 children with erosive esophagitis undergoing the same monitoring. Of the 45 coughing patients, 24 had a statistically significant relationship between cough 
and reflux episodes. Of these 24, 19 had no GI symptoms whatsoever. Both patients with cough-related reflux and the controls with erosive esophagitis had increased acid, weekly acid, and alkaline reflux compared to patients with cough unrelated to reflux, but the total acid exposure and acid clearance times were really only abnormal in the patients with erosive esophagitis. 319 episodes of cough were recorded in the patients with cough-related reflux. Only about 50% of the coughing episodes were related temporally to reflux. 53 of the 158 reflux-associated coughing episodes were only detected by impedance monitoring and would have been missed with the pH probe alone. 66% of the reflux-related coughs involved acid reflux and 34% involved weekly acid or non-acid events. What's still missing from papers like this one is a careful assessment of what is stimulating the other 50% of the episodes of cough that aren't temporally associated with reflux. We need that information before we can be satisfied that we have a real handle on the etiology of chronic cough in these patients. The next article is entitled Safety of Percutaneous Endoscopic Gastrostomy in Medically Complicated Infants by Minar and colleagues. These authors reviewed their experience with 40 infants from the neonatal intensive care units of two hospitals in the Milwaukee area who received a PEG tube between January 2001 and June 2008. The primary indication for most of the infants was dysphagia or inability to orally feed with safety. The average weight at PEG placement was 3,200 grams with a range from 2,100 to 5,600 grams. The PEG was successfully placed in 38 of the 40 infants. There was one major complication in a 38-week-old infant with Prader-Willi syndrome who developed a pneumomediastinum caused by a tear at the upper esophageal sphincter. In a second infant, the PEG bumper could not be passed beyond the upper esophageal sphincter. The authors conclude that in their hands, PEG tube placement in infants was safe and successful, but that the size of the upper esophageal sphincter may be a limiting factor. The next article is entitled Evaluation of Guidelines for Management of Familial Adenomatous Polyposis in a Multicenter Pediatric Cohort by Monk and colleagues. This paper is a summary of data from 10 centers in the French-speaking Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition Group describing the diagnosis and management of familial adenomatous polyposis in pediatric patients under 18 years of age. Data included were the results of genetic testing, endoscopy, histopathology, and therapy. A total of 70 children from 47 families were reviewed. 59 children were identified because of a positive family history, and 11 were identified by symptoms only. Genetic screening for large genomic deletions and for 27 different APC germline mutations was positive in 43 of the 47 families. Extracolonic manifestations were found in half of the patients. Adenomas were found above an intact rectosigmoid in eight patients. Prophylactic colectomy was performed in 42 cases. High-grade dysplastic adenoma and one invasive carcinoma were detected in six of these children. The best part about this paper is the excellent discussion and literature review focused on the relationship of genetic mutational analysis to the timing of surgery and prognosis. 
Genetic studies in adults are showing that the severity and malignant potential of colonic polyposis depends partly on the mutation site. Mutations between codons 1250 and 1464, with hotspot mutations at codons 1309 and 1061, are associated with a severe phenotype in which patients have thousands of polyps. In these patients, bowel symptoms and neoplastic disease tend to develop much earlier. Conversely, mutations before codon 157 and after codon 1595 and in the alternatively spliced region of exon 9 are usually associated with an attenuated form of FAP in which patients develop colorectal cancer at a much more advanced age. The authors warn that mutation site analysis can't be counted on as a completely accurate predictor of outcome, but the data are becoming an important part of planning for care of these patients. The first Hepatology and Nutrition original article is entitled Effects of Community-Based Follow-Up Care in Managing Severely Underweight Children by Hossein and colleagues. The aim of this study was to assess the effects of community-based follow-up care, food supplement, and psychosocial stimulation on the recovery of severely underweight children. 507 underweight children under 2 years of age with weight for age z-scores below minus 3 at the International Center for Diarrheal Disease Research in Bangladesh were randomly assigned to one of five treatment plans for three months after they had recovered from acute diarrhea. First, every two-week follow-up care at the center for growth monitoring, education, and micronutrient supplementation. Second, every two-week follow-up at community clinics using the same treatment regimen. Third, community-based follow-up similar to the first two groups plus cereal-based supplementary food. Fourth, follow-up plus psychosocial stimulation. And finally, every two-week community-based follow-up plus both supplemental food and psychosocial stimulation. Follow-up compliance was significantly better in the outpatient setting. Rates of weight gain were greater in all of the community-based groups compared with the hospital and clinic groups by about two to 400 grams. Weight gain, change in weight for age z-score, and weight for length z-score were better in groups that received supplemental food, and linear growth was greater among children managed in the community. The authors conclude that community-based service delivery, especially including supplemental food, permits better rehabilitation of greater numbers of severely underweight children. The next article is entitled Infectious Complications in Pediatric Acute Liver Failure by Godbowl and colleagues. Infectious complications of acute liver failure in adults are a major source of mortality. The aim of this study was to monitor the incidence of infection and its impact on outcome in children with acute liver failure. Case records of 145 children with acute liver failure at King's College Hospital in London were reviewed. All patients received antibiotics and antifungal prophylaxis from day one of admission, and high-dose acyclovir was given to neonates until HSV infection was ruled out. Complications and outcome were compared between patients with infection and those without. The median age was 4.2 days with a very wide range from 1 day to 16 years. 37 patients or 25% had proven infections. The predominant infections were 14 episodes of bacteremia in 13 patients 
and lower respiratory tract infection and urinary tract infection in 10 and 8 patients, respectively. Infectious complications occurred in patients after a mean of 16 days in the hospital. Median duration of hospital stay in patients with infection was 38 days, and this was significantly higher than the median of 10 days in patients without infection. Overall mortality was 21%, 7% occurring in the infection group, and 14% in the group with no infections. This difference was not statistically significant. The conclusion here is that infection increases morbidity, but does not impact survival in these critically ill patients. The next article is entitled, Corticosteroid Exposure is Not Associated with Long-Term Bone Mineral Density in Pediatric Liver Transplantation by Nightingale and colleagues. This is a very short retrospective study that measured bone mineral density in 52 pediatric patients from 4 to 18 years of age who were more than one year after liver transplantation to see whether there was any relationship between the bone mineral density measured by DEXA and the original diagnosis, steroid therapy, diet, growth, and incidence of fractures. Low bone mineral density was noted in only three of these patients, while fractures occurred in 11 of the 52. The authors found that neither the total corticosteroid exposure before or after transplant, nor a cholestatic primary diagnosis, was related to late post-transplant bone mineral density or fractures. Decreased body mass index and transplantation at age greater than 10 years were associated with fractures and low bone mineral density after transplantation. They recommend that early attention to bone health in these older, thinner patients might be appropriate. This concludes the JPGN podcast for September 2011. For more information on the contents of this issue or to access the complete articles, visit the JPGN website at jpgn.org or the Naspigan website at naspigan.org. JPGN is the official journal of Espigan and Naspigan. The co-editors are Mel Heyman and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. Thank you.